Let's cultivate our motivation. And really uh, contemplate that with a little change in the karma ripening, we could be in a very different situation than we are in right now. And so I think of the people working in the poultry and meat factories who the government was saying should reopen and how uh, fearful those people must be of getting the coronavirus and spreading it to their families but how fearful they must be if they don't go to work and then don't have the food, the money for food. And I see that part of my mind wants to get angry at the people who own those companies, not only for killing the animals, but being so callous regarding the human beings that work there. I'd love for them to have to work in the factory themselves for a few months and really feel what the workers feel and be exposed to the same danger. There's this bit of anger that says, you should have a taste of your own medicine. But then when you practice the Dharma for a while, you realize every time you get angry, the mind is not abiding in even conventional reality. The mind is skewed. And so to come back to a mind of compassion, knowing that the people who own these factories are under the influence of afflictions and karma. And I don't have to wish them harm because they're experiencing harm won't necessarily change their actions. But my wishing somebody else harm uh, will definitely change my experiences right now, as well as future lives' experiences. So it's much more effective to have compassion and also to make prayers that those people can open their hearts towards the workers, towards the animals too. Because wishing them harm won't open their hearts, but praying for them to have open hearts and 
to be able to influence them in some way, this life. And if not this life, then in, pre, in future lives. So that they can be aware of karma and its effects and create the cause of happiness and abandon the causes of suffering. So in case you have anybody that you're wishing harm to in this pandemic, see if you can change your mind like that. And recommit to generating bodhicitta so that we'll be able to benefit those people and lead them to full awakening. Are any of you having that kind of mind too? <laughs> yes? You want to say something about it? I, I, I almost say no because it's, it's not maybe not a daily activity, but over the last weeks, in fact, it's actually gotten less because I practice with it more and more. But the, but the sense of wanting to be angry and outraged at everything that looks like it's going to harm even more people senseless, just senselessly, like the meat production issue. Um, but I also know, just as you said, that it doesn't help. I can't change it. It doesn't fix it. And it makes me miserable. And I'm no help if I'm riled up at all. So it's hardly worth saying. It's a, yeah, it's an everyday occurrence, and we practice with it. <laughs> yeah, but it's easy to, uh, you know, if you meditate a lot on compassion, yes and yes. Then in the back of the mind, that thought: I want them to have a taste of their own classism, their own racism. You know, and then it's like, ugh, what kind of mind is that <laughs> wishing somebody else harm? You know, and the ridiculousness of thinking that if somebody else suffers, they will change their ways. Yeah? <laughs> it That just doesn't work, you know. We keep thinking as if, People were kids, and if you spank them, then they'll behave. 
But even kids, you spank them, <laughs> they make, it makes them act worse sometimes. Um, so how to have a kind heart and yet hold what we believe in and not just say, well, it doesn't matter. I can't do anything about it, so it doesn't matter. You know, it does matter. And we can't do anything about it right now in our present form. But if we can make prayers in the future to be able to teach more and more sentient beings about karma, then they can help themselves by creating virtue and abandoning non-virtue. And that really helps them. It's a much it's much slower than barging into the Tyson company headquarters and saying, Mr. Tyson, go work in your own factory. It's probably going to work better than doing that. Yeah? But it takes time. And we want to fix everything right now. Because it shouldn't be like that to start with. Should it? world should be different. Samsara shouldn't be samsara. Samsara samsara should be nirvana without us having to do any work. (laughs) You know, we really see how ridiculous our mind is sometimes. Okay, so... (laughs) So last time we read that quotation from the inquiry of Ugra Sutra, yeah, which um, is very powerful, you know, talking about how to relate to objects of attachment. Yeah, how we will experience the fruit of our own act, our own karma our own actions following attachment and anger and everything else. So we'll continue reading uh, on page 201, halfway down. Using our human intelligence to accomplish long-term benefit for ourselves is valuable. Whereas focusing on just our own short-term interests is limited. Even business persons who are non-believers know that being short-sighted and impatient is a disadvantage to achieving their goals. If this is true for obtaining good results in this life, it is even truer for actualizing our spiritual goals. Yeah, so big investors, they don't expect to make money the first few years. Yeah. They know if they create the causes, then after a few years, all the dough will come rolling in. And then they can buy their five more houses and three more yachts, like that. Okay, thus, when we experience suffering and are deprived of sensory pleasures, wealth, praise, and fame, We should maintain a long-term perspective and practice fortitude so we can tolerate these temporary situations in cyclic existence. 
So fortitude really pays off. And what I find also is very helpful when we're facing these kind of miserable situations is to say, I'm really glad this is happening. Yeah. Why am I glad? It's burning up my negative karma. And it's uh, helping me to have a more realistic view of samsara and not see samsara as so enchanted. Such fortitude maintains our spiritual resolve without feeling defeated or upset, no matter what we encounter. So think of the people who were imprisoned after the communist takeover in China and in Tibet. And the ones who survived were the ones who had this kind of perspective. But when we are focused on only our immediate happiness and benefit, we are perpetually dissatisfied and create much destructive karma. Ain't that true? Yeah. I don't like this, and I don't like that, and I want this, and I don't want that. Yeah. Our precious human life presents us with great opportunities. If we use our energy only to get delicious food, attractive clothing, a good income, a great reputation, and popularity, we waste our human potential. Somebody's going to go, what? Or double what? (laughs) You know, you're telling me to give up wanting all those things that my parents and family and society and friends all think are what gives happiness and are a mark of success, and you're telling me that look, getting those things is wasting my human potential? You know, what in the world are you talking about? Hmm? Yeah, Have you had friends and relatives say that to you? Or have, have you even dared to say to them that those things waste our human potential? Yeah, I can't even say it because we we know they can't take it in. Using our human intelligence to improve only our external situation, but that not the state of our mind and heart, does not do justice to our extraordinary intelligence. Simply helping our friends and harming our enemies wastes our human potential and does nothing to distinguish us from animals who also care for their dear ones and harm those who threaten them. We must not limit our human life to just these activities. Spending our lives striving only for the eight worldly concerns leaves us regretful at the end of our lives, for none of these is of any use to us at the time of death or afterwards. We regret wasting a little money, but we should regret even more wasting our lives, seeking only comfort, prestige, romantic love, and so forth. It's true, isn't it? We regret wasting a little bit of money, but we'll waste our time and never regret it. Yeah. What then can human beings do that animals and insects cannot do? 
we can transform, discipline, and train our minds and hearts. We can understand teachings on ethical conduct and the method to cultivate love and compassion. We can realize the nature of reality, which will liberate us from all dukkha. Channeling our energy into actualizing our peerless potential is truly worthwhile. You can see how these teachings, you know, that apply at the beginning of the path are so essential, yeah, to do any kind of Dharma practice. Because if we don't have this kind of attitude, we may do things that look like Dharma practice. But our mind is not engaged towards any Dharma uh, uh, goal at all, the mind can be totally involved in the worldly concerns. Yeah, so this is so important to to have clear in our minds um, at the at the beginning of our practice, and to carry that clarity with us as we continue to practice. Yeah, so it. it it comes at the beginning of the path, but that doesn't mean it's easy. It's actually quite an advanced practice to give up attachment to the worldly concerns. Yeah, it's quite advanced. Each sentient being wants happiness. A worldly perspective leads us to believe that it is found by possessing certain things, being close to specific people, and gaining acceptance and reputation. A Dharma perspective proposes seeking happiness in transforming our mind and heart and cultivating our wisdom and good heart. Dharma practitioners seek happiness in a more reliable way by expanding our motivation to include the long-term welfare of all sentient beings. The Buddha spoke of the joy a sincere practitioner derives from Dharma practice by living ethically. Okay, so by living ethically, he experiences within himself a bliss that is blameless. So when you live ethically, you don't have any guilt. You don't have any self-reproach. You don't have anything weighing on your heart that you feel bad about. Yeah. So that's a kind of uh, a bliss that is blameless. Yeah, the heart is so much freer because we've we've lived a good life ethically. Living an ethical life enables us to be free from guilt and remorse and to feel good about our actions. By restraining the sense faculties so that the mind is not continuously running here and there in search of temporal pleasure, he experiences within himself a bliss that is unsullied, okay, that arises from acting with mindfulness and introspective awareness. So just that practice of, you know, in our daily actions, being mindful, introspective awareness, keeping good ethical conduct, being kind, you know, 
it produces a certain kind of bliss. It's not like, wow, that kind of bliss. But there's a certain, you know, contentment and peace in the mind that you can't get otherwise. Yeah, nothing, nothing else will bring that kind of peace in the mind. By cultivating contentment, we experience the inner pe- internal peace of accepting ourselves. Boy, does that bring peace, doesn't it, when we can just accept ourselves. The practice of bodhicitta opens our hearts with love and compassion towards all beings, producing great joy in the mind. By acting for the benefit of others, we gain the satisfaction of making a positive contribution to the welfare of others. The practice of stabilizing meditation leads to the attainment of higher states of concentration. The joy and bliss that arise in them are free from attachment to the desire realm and invigorate the mind. So His Holiness is giving us all the reasons why we should buy this product. Okay? This, This is... You know, often in the Dharma, they talk about the advantages of doing X, Y, and Z and the disadvantages of not doing it, you know? And it's the, the same kind of mind. If, if you're advertising, tell the people the benefit and they'll want it. So he's telling us the benefit. But the difference from advertising is this is not propaganda, you know? This is... Uh, what he's telling us is true about the benefits. Okay. Realizing the true nature of all phenomena and integrating it in our lives brings a peace that cannot be destroyed. The union of clear light and illusory body and tantric practice produces the magnificent bliss of full awakening. The Buddha spoke of giving up attachment to the pleasures of this life in order to lead us on the path to more stable and profound states of fulfillment that can be actualized only by Dharma practice. Sentient beings naturally seek happiness, and there is nothing wrong with having it. We want to free ourselves from attachment to inferior states of happiness that are in the nature of dukkha, like the second kind of dukkha, the dukkha of change. Rather than seek situations and things that at first appear wonderful, but eventually become troublesome, it is wiser to generate spiritual happiness that is based on more stable, realistic, and beneficial states of mind. So, He talked a lot about this life. Now, next chapter, chapter 9, looking beyond this life. What happens? Because this life is not going to last forever. So what happens after this life? And this has been a question, you know, that human beings have been dealing with for the very beginning. You know, all cultures have this question in mind of what happens after death. 
To attain a fortunate rebirth, liberation, and full awakening, we must have heartfelt aspirations and a firm commitment to engage in the practices that bring these about. In other words, create the cause for the results you want. Understanding the benefits of attaining those aims and the disadvantages of not attaining them fosters a pure motivation. Contemplating the drawbacks of being born as uh, one of the three unfortunate classes of beings and the opportunities for spiritual uh, progress with a fortunate rebirth will motivate us to keep good ethical conduct, practice the six perfections, and dedicate the merit for a precious human life. Okay, so that's the recipe. If you want a good rebirth, what you have to do. Reflecting on the faults of cyclic existence and the difficulties of being under the power of afflictions and karma motivates us to counteract these. Contemplating the kindness of sentient beings and their dukkha generates the aspiration for awakening. Okay, so there he is laying out exactly the qualities we have to develop, you know, the things to train the mind in. And it really is a great fortune to have the Buddha's teaching that laid this out because imagine being born with the same kind of spiritual longing and so forth that you have now, but having no access to teachers or teachings or having access to teachers and teachings that taught, you know, that teach the wrong path. So, you know, having a perfect guide like the Buddha and then like His Holiness here, it's extraordinarily good fortune that we have. Nobody's telling us to take poison, yeah, in order to have a good rebirth. Or at the time of the Buddha, there's these sutras in the Pali Canon where different non-Buddhist wanderers, people who have given up, you know, attachment to the happiness of this life, you know, they've abandoned their families, they're wanderers, they rely on alms, but they have a teacher who told them that they should act like animals. Because if they act like animals now, it will prevent them from having an animal rebirth in the future. So these wanderers would come crawling up to the Buddha on all fours, yeah, eat food from the ground, yeah, lap up water. You know, there was one, uh, you know, he was being a dog. And he would curl up just like a dog when he was in the presence of the Buddha, talking to the Buddha. Okay? So imagine having a teacher who's telling you that that's the path to purify your negative karma and get a good rebirth. And think that that's all you had access to. Mm Hmm? Or, I mean, there's so many strange paths and, and things that people are told to do. Um, you know, Angulimala's uh, 
teacher. Remember Angulimala? He was the the criminal who was going around uh, killing people because his teacher told him that he should make a necklace of uh, the finger bones of a thousand people. So I don't know what he was promised from doing this, some kind of liberation or something. Yeah. And so he was going around murdering people. And he was going to murder the Buddha, except he couldn't catch him. But imagine, you know, you, you really are seeking a spiritual path, and you meet a teacher that teaches you that. And that's all you have access to. Huh? So, um, yeah, we're, we're very fortunate to have met the Buddha's teachings. Hmm? Or, you know, I think even of, of uh, you know, the people that beat themselves, yeah, that flail themselves as a way to tame attachment. It doesn't work. It doesn't purify anything. So having met the Buddha's teachings, we're very fortunate. As described above, the bigger, biggest obstacle to attaining our spiritual aims is our obsessive preoccupation with the eight worldly concerns, which lead us to engage in destructive actions and distract us from creating virtue. The most effective way to initially subdue the eight worldly concerns is to reflect on impermanence and death. So the Dhammapala counsels, this world is blind. There are so few who see things as they truly are. Come, take a good look at this world, pretty like a king's chariot. Though fools become immersed in it, for the wise there is no attachment. See how it is like a bubble. See how it is like a mirage. The king of death does not see one who regards the world in this way. Rouse yourself and don't be lazy. Follow the good ways of Dhamma. Okay, so meditating on impermanence is the, uh, you know, especially at the beginning, very forceful way to overcome the eight worldly concerns, not only at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, too. Okay? So first, uh, there's this section on gross and subtle impermanence. Okay? So the first, six, uh, the first of the 16 aspects, or the key points, of the four truths, and the first of the four seals that mark a teaching as Buddha Dhamma. Impermanence is an essential point to contemplate on the path. Okay, so it was the first teaching the Buddha gave. It was the last teaching he gave. It's the first of the four seals. It's the first of the 16 aspects. It's important, okay? Impermanence has two levels, subtle and gross. Subtle impermanence refers to the fact 
that every conditioned phenomena changes and does not endure to the next moment. Its very nature is transient. The subtle particles composing an atom are in constant motion. Each moment of mind ceases and gives way to the next. In order to be impermanent, things do not need to be in physical motion. Okay? Because it's very easy for us to think of inherently existent particles that move around. Okay? Atoms are inherently existent and they move around. So, okay, uh, they move around, but there's some aspect of them that is still permanent, that doesn't change. They're always a small particle. Okay? So it doesn't have to move in order to be impermanent. Yeah? To be impermanent is just whatever there is in one moment does not endure to the next moment. So you don't have to see it with your eyes or sense it with any of your physical uh, senses. Okay. Gross impermanence refers to the ceasing of the continuity of an object. A chair breaks, a human being dies. Initial level practitioners meditate on gross impermanence to help them to evaluate their priorities in life by seeing the impermanent nature of the happiness of just this life and the eight worldly concerns. Okay, so this is really thinking about gross impermanence. Yeah, how this life is going to end, you know, the impermanence of death. That's gross impermanence. The impermanence of... Uh, Getting, getting one of the objects of one of the eight worldly concerns or one of the four pleasant ones and then losing it or it breaking, okay? So this gross kind of impermanence that any kind of uh, worldly pleasure that we get, uh, aside from changing in every single nanosecond, it's going to come to an end. Yeah. Why? Because the causal energy for it runs out. Yeah. You go on vacation, you have to come home. <laughs> yeah. You get money, you go spend it, it's done. It's finished. So anything, uh, yeah, you know, when we think of all the pleasures that, that our mind hankers after, uh, you know, none of them last really very long. Uh, and then we're, we're separated from the object that seems to create that pleasure. Not thinking that we will die one day. We think, I need this. I need this and that because I'm going to live. Focusing on the pursuit of money fame, praise, success, and comfortable experiences, all of which do not last long. We neglect to prepare to depart this life and go on to the next. This makes me think of some Dharma practitioners I know, and I don't know what their what their motivation was. I mean, they 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 were practicing, 
but they were also, they were building their dream house. Okay? So everybody has their dream house that they want. So this couple, and they had a little girl, um, and they were building their dream house. And he, he was in construction, so he was building it. And uh, one day, at the end of the day, he was uh, coming off the roof, and he slipped, and he fell on, what are the rods? The rebar. rebar. He fell on a rebar, and it went right through his neck. And she ran out. She heard him scream, and he died right there. In her, you know, she was holding him. And then she, you know, the child was was really little at the time, so the child was brought up. But it was a big, it was a tragedy for the family and for the whole Dharma community, because they were part of the center. You know who I'm talking about. And, um, you know, that day when he woke up, you know, when the, all of them in the family, nobody thought. He was going to die that day. Yeah. Nobody thought that. And, uh, you know, especially you're a young couple with a young child. You have your whole life in front of you. You know, you can hear people talking. And uh, and then like that, you know, the whole thing was, was gone. Building their dream house. So it's always made me very cautious after that, you know, not to uh, get too happy when approaching something that I want because you don't, first of all, know if you're going to get it, and second of all, what's going to happen on the way to there. So better to, you know, have a little bit of space in the mind you do that. If it comes, good. If it doesn't come, it's okay. You know? Because our lives are unpredictable. Huh? Yeah. I mean, we hear so, so many stories that always happen to other people. Have you ever noticed that? These things always happen to other people. And we're sure they will continue to happen to other people. And somehow we will live forever or we will die, but not for another 10 million years. Yeah, those things happen to other people. Okay. Awareness of the fleeting nature of life spurs us to engage in what is beneficial for this life as well as what is meaningful for lives to come. A Lamrim text encourages us to think of impermanence in five ways. And I couldn't find which Lamrim text it was, but I know this came from a good source. Okay, so the first uh, way of thinking about impermanence. The impermanence of destruction refers to the annihilation of something that existed. For example, the Twin Towers in New York were decimated, and death is the cessation of a person's life force. Okay, so there's something that existed, and it's finished. It's annihilated. 
Okay, so Twin Towers is a good example, isn't it? Yeah. Um, bombs, I think of Syria and, you know, being bombed, your whole house is bombed, or, um, you know, yeah, any kind of natural catastrophe or human-made catastrophe. All right, yeah. How they blew up the the Bamyan Buddha, the one that was carved into the the cliff. Okay, the second is the impermanence of cultural trends and attitudes. Okay, points to the changes occurring in society. So a hundred years ago, women had few options in life outside of marriage and family. Really, that was it. And that's why uh, many women became Catholic nuns, because it gave them uh, a way to live without, you know, husband and family. And I suspect some women, you know, became Buddhist nuns for the same reason. They didn't like that, uh, that path that was prescribed for women. Now more opportunities are available to them. And society benefits from women's contribution. Centuries ago, democracy was virtually unheard of. Now it is a value in many cultures. So cultural trends change. And we can see that, you know, things that uh, uh, were okay to do 100 years ago now are getting called out for being racist or sexist or whatever, but they were completely accepted a hundred years ago, you know? I mean, when, when I think of it, it, you know, women have only in this country, this country that taught us when we were little kids that we were the beacon of democracy where everybody was created equal, women have only been able to vote for a hundred years. Yeah, that's it. Uh, to me, that's really shocking. And when I think, you know, I was born in 1950. So women had only been able to vote for 30 years when I was born. You know? And that even when I was born, people were still getting lynched in the South. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe sometimes that things that seem so outrageous were actually happening during your, your own lifetime. I mean, you know, when you were a kid, you didn't even know about these things, what they were, but they were going on. But fortunately, cultural trends change. And they, they just outlawed in Sudan, um, what do they call it? Uh, genit genital mutilation for women. Yeah, they just outlawed it. That's legally. But of course, changing people's minds is going to take a long time. But it's a step in the right direction. Okay, so cultural trends, in some, sometimes they change for the better. Right now, I think we're in a dangerous place regarding democracy, not only in our country, but in 
places in Europe and Asia, you know, it's very easy uh, for things to slide back into dictatorship and autocrats. Yeah, very easy. And a lot of, you know, many people are not even aware of that. How, how easy, how easy. I mean, I wasn't, in, 19, in 2016, I thought, okay, you know, this isn't who I would have voted for, but how much harm can one person do? Because I was thinking of Obama and how much good he tried to do, and he was always getting blocked by people. So I thought, you know, a president can't really change so much stuff in society. I was wrong, really wrong, you know? And so uh, how easy it could be to, to, you know, lose the, the democracy and the values that we have now. Yeah, I think of, uh, you know, my, my nephew and niece and like, what are they going to experience in their life? Yeah, what, I mean, they're going to have to face climate change. They're going to have to face so many things. Okay, number three, the impermanence of separation. Okay, so these are just pointing out different kinds of impermanence to us to shake up our mind of thinking that everything is permanent and predictable. Okay, the impermanence of separation indicates that whatever comes together must separate. It is impossible to always remain together. Relationships transform over time, and people who were close at one time later go their own ways. This is really true, isn't it? Yeah. Organizations and companies form and dissolve. Their employees going in many different directions. Yeah, so you can have, you know, some company that's big, that's existed for years and years and very wealthy, and then they go bankrupt or they, you know, dissolve. And everybody's kind of surprised. How could that happen? Yeah. Or, you know, people have been married. Uh, I was reading one article on somebody's parents who were in their 80s separated and got divorced. You know, they had been married since they were in their 20s. And then in their 80s, how much longer time do you have to live? They got divorced. You know, and how shook up the kids and grandkids were. You know, like, wait a minute, this wasn't supposed to happen. But how interesting it is that, you know, that late in life, you know, okay, bye. <laughs> then four is sudden impermanence, is the fact that circumstances can change quickly and unexpectedly. And the coronavirus arrival in the U.S., is an excellent example of that, isn't it? You know? And how we heard about it in China, but it's in China. It's not going to come here, you know? 
and we have it in control, and nobody's coming here, and anyway, it's just like the flu, and nothing so bad is going to happen. And then, I mean, I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, but it really felt like from one day to the next, things really changed. Yeah, if it was at the end of February, the beginning of March, but it really felt that just in the matter of, it wasn't literally one day to the next, but maybe over two or three days, it went from, you know, we're all walking around doing whatever we want to, hey, this is really serious and we've got to be careful. Yeah. And if anybody had told us, even in January, you know, that the whole American economy would be, you know, disintegrated, how can that happen? The richest country in the world is totally unprepared in their economy disintegrated. And they have, you know, the highest death count of any other country. Yeah, and how shocking this is to the rest of the world, you know. Other countries are like, wait, we thought we were we were relying on American leadership. I never thought of America as a leader, but other countries apparently did, you know. We were relying on American leadership. And now it's not there, you know, and it's not only not there, but it's a mess in America, you know, and it is a mess, isn't it? It's a total mess. And nobody expected this to happen. Even, you know, in January, nobody, February, March, April, yeah, nobody expected it. And then, okay, so that's a good example of sudden impermanence. We get up in the morning expecting to have certain experiences and meet particular people, but plans change on short notice, as we all know living here. And think of the people who get up in the morning and get in a car accident, and their entire life changes because of the car accident. And it wasn't on their, in their schedule for what was going to happen that day. While we can easily adapt to some sudden changes, others, such as a mass shooting or the death of a dear one in a car accident, are different, difficult to adapt to. Yeah, so mass shootings, people are in shock. You know, what happened? It was just last weekend, wasn't it, in Canada? You know, the mass shooting. And it's like, Canada? That's not supposed to happen in Canada. That's what happens in America. Canadians are different than Americans. That doesn't happen in Canada. And especially not in a peaceful rural area in Nova Scotia. Yeah, of all areas, that's where it's peaceful and the people are chilled out and, you know, nothing bad happens there. And then, you know, 
I don't know if is everybody aware of what happened. There was a huge um, this one person who was a denturist somehow snapped, and he went on a shooting rampage. He fixed his one of his vehicles up as a police car. He was wearing police outfits. This went on for more than 13 hours. He yeah. covered many, many miles of territory, going into people's homes and shooting them dead. It was just um, a nightmare. Yeah. 18 people? 22. 22. Including the shooter. Yeah. Okay. So that's what happens in America. That doesn't happen in China, uh, Canada. Probably doesn't happen in China either, you know. So, okay, so sudden impermanence. There it is. Yes, yeah, yeah. That Justin Trudeau announced immediately that now, did, did the parliament, how did that get done so quickly that there's a ban on assault weapons? Okay, but yeah, within one week, it's like finished with assault weapons. They're smart people. <laughs> I think he was influenced by the Prime Minister of New Zealand because she made that same move yes. two years ago. Yes. So let's give her some credit. Yeah. Oh, she did really well. Yeah. Who? The way they manage the COVID. Oh, yeah. Yeah, New Zealand. Yeah, very well. Okay, so things can change for the better. Um, you know, as soon as we all learn to levitate, we can levitate the abbey, including the buildings, and go to <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then five, the nature of impermanence refers to the fact that everything that arises due to causes and conditions is transitory in nature. Whether we want it to be stable and predictable or wish it to change quickly, change is its very nature. Mm -hmm. And we often have a difficult time getting used to change, either change that we didn't expect or change that we didn't want. When it's change that we wanted, it's very easy to accept. But when it's change that we didn't want, then it's quite difficult. Okay, so the reflection there, review the five points above one by one and make examples of them from your life. Notice the effect that this has on your mind. Okay, so that's your homework for this week. Any questions so far? This is not a question, but I want to say I'm still in shock from the motivation you led and um, the proposed solution of praying to be able to teach karma and its effects to, mm. to the uh, people we consider oppressors. Um, I guess because, I, you know, especially in the situation you raised, like it's a labor industry. Right. Where I don't get angry with the unethical business anymore, mainly because of the work I used to do. And you had to talk to a lot of what I consider unethical employers and look at a whole system. And I realized, yeah, 
people just want to be happy and not suffer. And all the actors in the system are responsible in some way, including ordinary citizens who are consumers of the product and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, so I don't go to anger anymore, but I wouldn't. And, and I get overwhelmed thinking about how do we fix this socially, you know, laws or how do you change cultural attitudes? Um, yeah. So to think about praying to teach them karma, I need to put that on my prayer list. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. Already thinking about how do you change social attitudes over decades. I'm like, whoa, so slow. <laughs> Takes too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, that is something that gives us hope, right? Like the fact that women have the right to vote in this country. How many suffragists, the incredible effort that all these other women put into. Yeah. And allies, building allies with men and so on. So, yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. Yeah, but teaching karma is the real, uh, the real way to to do it. Because then people help themselves, and and they realize for them their own self from through their own wisdom that if they want happiness, this is what they have to do. Yeah. Otherwise, you can make many many laws, and it's really long. It's like eons. Yeah. <laughs> But if you think that some bodhisattva at one point was looking at you in a previous life and said, oh, this person, she's in charge of, you know, a meat factory and she's harming so many sentient beings and not, no care at all for the animals, no care at all for the employees. And some bodhisattva saw you and thought like that and made this prayer. Yeah. And then a few eons later, they bumped into you in some life and they taught you karma. And you said, I don't believe that. And then, but it planted seeds. <laughs> and then a few more eons later, they bumped into you and they taught you again. And that time you said, well, yeah, maybe uh, and then a few more eons, and then, you know, eventually until you got it. Thank you. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, that's what bodhisattvas have had to do with us. Yeah. And eventually it worked. Eventually, kind of worked until we forget. But, you know, we're getting better, aren't we? Slowly. So their work hasn't been fruitless, and it's taken a long time. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure exactly how to put this question, but when you told the story of the man on the roof, your friend, so gross and subtle impermanence, this causal phenomena that that's neutral just everything that's happening moment by moment what's its relationship like he's just doing his thing yeah. where does karma i mean i i, I want to put them like when does karma be interrupted or how does karma interrupt subtle and gross impermanence to make it so personal to make it so act activate okay. something the, karma doesn't interrupt impermanence Inter impermanence is going on all the time, right. okay? But when conditions 
are ripe, then a karma ripens. While this whole impermanent world is going on. Yeah, the whole impermanent world is happening. And it's going to change whether we want it or not. But conditions come together for this karma to ripen. And so it just gets configured in the impermanent flow of what's happening. Okay. Yeah. It isn't like things are fixed and then some karma ripens and... Slaps itself on yeah, the impermanent Yeah, no, it's not like that. Because things are naturally impermanent and changing. Okay. Yeah. And just one more comment. Probably in his case, it was an example of an untimely death where... Uh, a very negative karma from the past ripened and cut short uh, his his karmic lifespan. So the situation with the coronavirus worldwide, uh, is it considered like a ripening of um, all our negative karma, like a collective karma? Mm-hmm. Um, our collective karma didn't cause this, but our collective karma made us all here having to endure it. In other words, the the biological whatever was going on with the coronavirus, you know, that's uh, the biological system of cause and effect. Yeah. But together, you know, why are all of us here? Because we have some collective karma to be together to experience this. Yeah. And with, or we committed some collective karma in the past to experience this, but within the general experience we have of being alive during this worldwide pandemic, each of us also is experiencing different results, you know, different situations. And that's due to our personal karma. So we have collective karma ripening, personal karma ripening, all sorts of different karmas causing all sorts of different aspects of our experience now. Um, So, and then you think how we respond to what's happening now is creating the cause for the future, you know? So... Are we responding to this with compassion? Are we responding with anger? Are we with responding with blaming other people? Yeah. yeah the Jared uh, said yesterday, "This has been a tremendous success." Yeah, and. There was a cartoon of him standing in a cemetery with all of the people who died from coronavirus saying this was a tremendous success. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So different people have different definitions of success. Yeah. And uh, and different levels of awareness or different levels of sensitivity. Okay, learning from our own mortality. 
I was, for what it's worth, as long as we're talking about the virus, um, you know, I found myself reading the news a lot and, and so on. And I'm asking myself, why am I reading the news so much? Or why am I clicking on like the song that you sent or the, the other one that you found? You know, why am I clicking on those things that I normally wouldn't do? And I thought, what I'm really, I'm trying, it's my way of connecting with the people who worldwide who are going through this. You know, every day on the front page of the New York Times, it has pictures from different parts of the world. I look at those pictures every morning, you know, and I realize it's, I feel the need to connect to the entire thing that's happening. Um, yeah. And, you know, one of the things I was reading, realizing too that everybody is grieving in a way and everybody is trying to adjust to this. And I had never thought of myself as grieving. Yeah, but, you know, why am I watching these funny things? Because it's, it's you know, it, it's kind of a way of saying, yeah, um, what we're studying here, everything is unpredictable, totally unpredictable, yeah? And we have to laugh at it at the end, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense at all, you know? Um, but to, to really think, you know, all these people who are doing the demonstrations and the people whose lives are, you know, they're losing their loved ones and, you know, everybody is grieving in some way or another. Yeah. And grief is, is, this is a really good definition of grief. It's adapting to a change that you didn't want. Yeah. So grief doesn't mean crying and wailing and da, 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 da. that's behavior, but it's just mentally adapting to a change that you didn't want. And the whole world is adapting to a big change that none of us expected. And I don't think any of us wanted either. And, uh, you know, there we are, and we really are all in it together. Yeah, there's no way to, I mean, we are high on a hill in eastern Washington, but we're also right in the middle of it, aren't we? I mean, we're part of this whole experience, and we're not separate from uh, from what is going on. And I think, you know, why am I reading the news? I want to know what's going on and I want to, you know, connect with the people and all the different things that are going on, you know? So anyway, I just spilled all of that out. You know, <laughs> in the thought that maybe some of you would say, oh, maybe I'm going through that too. That's what it is, you know? <laughs> yeah. We feel the same way. We're a big human family, and we need to know what's happening in all the different places. Yeah. Even if it's tragic, 
but also the beauty, you know, I mean, there's just it's everything. It's tragic. It's beautiful. It's yeah. crazy. It's heartwarming. It's, and we have to be a part of it all. Yeah. Because we're all in this together. We're all in it. And I never expected to live through a pandemic. You know, pandemics are what I read about in history books, you know. And why did they have pandemics? Because they didn't have modern medicine and because they didn't have government structure that worked properly. But now we're beyond pandemics. <laughs> yeah. Pandemics are what happened in 1918, not 1920, not 2020. Like, oh boy, we're living through a pandemic. Huh? And some people who are just being born now, you know, will one day say to us, what was it like during the 2020 pandemic? You know? And then we can proudly say, we can be the experts on the 2020 pandemic and tell them what it was really like. No, I mean, it's here, here we are. We really are all in this together. And, you know, us, the Indian workers who can't get to their villages. Yeah, the, everybody. It's. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, Tuche is asking, is grief an affliction? Would a Buddha grieve? You know, I remember that, um, what was it? Marpa, Marpa's son died. And Marpa grieved the loss of his son. Yeah. Now, you can grieve with attachment, and I think you can also grieve without attachment. If grief is getting used to a change that we didn't want, you know, okay, you maybe the you know there's still clinging because we're expecting everything to be permanent and predictable, but uh, you know, as we release that, maybe we're not you know, grieving for a particular person. I'm certainly not grieving for American life the way it was last year. You know, I'm not wanting that to come back. Okay. But there's a, a grief in the sense of getting used to something that, uh, you know, wasn't in my book. Yeah. The crying, the wailing, the I can't live without this. This is terrible. My life is worthless. Everything is hopeless. I miss this person. How am I going to survive without them? What's going to happen to me? That kind of grief is the mind's under the influence of affliction. Okay. But all the great sage had tears. Mm. All of them. Yeah. For us, looking at us. Yep. Yep. That's true. There's Bodhisattva. His name was Bodhisattva, always crying. 
Yeah, I think you're in his lineage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And that, that's, that was his name because he cried, you know, looking at sentient beings and he just cried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An experience in my winter retreat last year, going back to very, very early stuff. And I realized that with one person's death and the rippling effect on how that life impacts so many people, not just me or one person, mm. it made the grief so much more spacious, like it was the nature of life. It was the nature of dukkha. So when I look at the pandemic, and I think for every one of our you know, 1.2 million people who ever died in the world, each one of them had a life and had yeah. connectedness and love and struggles. And that's what opens my heart to be able to take that in rather than hunkering down on how small I can get when I see how big this is. Mm -hmm. But it really, just to know that all the hearts and all the people's lives that are being touched deeply by the death of one of these people, Mm -hmm. And that we have that we have a relationship to them in that sense, yeah. you know, and it really opens up my mind to really hold them in, in a less personal, less attached, less despairing kind right. of way. Yeah, it's not this thing is not just about us, and it's not just about you know uh, our own personal misery or inconvenience or whatever. It's it's too big. We can't think just in about ourselves in this. Yeah. I'm remembering, I think it was Paul Ekman who studied His Holiness's face and the emotions that go through his face, and uh -huh. reporting on when he would get news of some Tibetans and some of the tragedies that they were living through. Mm -hmm. And there would be this ripple of strong emotion that went through his face, and then it would leave. And I think that the way I understood that is that that's an, a, a testament to someone who understands cause and effect, yeah. but also experiences the impact and yeah. and, and feels. Um, but it doesn't like stay with him, yeah, in in a detrimental way, right, right, yeah. I mean, when your mind is familiar with impermanence, yeah, this isn't going to stay with you in a detrimental way. But it's definitely going to impact you. Yeah. So. Okay, next section is called Learning from Our Own Mortality. Contemplating death is neither morbid nor unrealistic. Okay, contrary to what society says. You know, the feeling in my family was if you talk about death, it might happen. And if you don't talk about it, it may not happen. So let's not talk about it. Also, because we really don't know what happens. Yeah. I, near our house off the freeway, there was one of these big forest lawn uh, cemeteries. And whenever we drove to a certain place, you would drive, it was visible from the highway, this huge forest lawn. 
cemetery. This was before uh, Forest Lawn became a picnic place and had an art gallery and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, when it was, you know, only a, a cemetery. And I remember being a little kid and asking my parents, what is that? You know, because you see the tombs. It's a cemetery. What is a cemetery? It's where you bury dead people. It's a dead person. Uh, it, it's somebody who uh, goes to sleep for a long time. Why do they go to sleep for a long time? Oh, uh, let we need to go pee pee. Let's get off the highway at this next exit, and you know we can get a drink and have a toilet break, and you know, and then we're almost home. We'll be there soon. Don't worry about it. It was like, yeah, don't talk about this because adults don't know how to answer kids' questions. You know, they don't know. And when you're a parent, to say to your child, you don't know. When your child is looking at you like they should know. You, you're a parent. You should know everything. Okay, to the contrary. Contemplating death helps us prepare for death and live with more wisdom and kindness. This meditation has three points. First one, death is definite. Time is uncertain, and at the time of death, only the Dharma can help us. Each point has three subpoints and a conclusion. Together, these lead us to a realistic and beneficial perspective on what is important in life. You know, and really, when you meditate on, on death, it really clarifies what is important and what is not important. You know, if if you have a Buddhist worldview, yeah, if you don't have a Buddhist worldview, you still can come to some conclusions, maybe that, you know, money isn't the whole meaning of life. Uh, but really for a Buddhist practitioner, it really um, drives home the uh, importance of of practicing now and not getting distracted by the eight worldly concerns. But for worldly people too, you know, if you present it in, uh, or people who don't know Dharma, I should say, um, it still helps them to think about, you know, what is really important to me in my life. Yeah, and that's important to think about now rather than to wait until right before you die when you can't change anything. Okay, so death is definite. Death is the cutting off of the life faculty. It occurs at the time that the continuities of body and mind are disjoined. The continuity of the body is a lifeless corpse. In general, the continuity of the mind enters an, in, an intermediate state. And then ordinary beings take rebirth in another coarse body. The only exceptions are meditators who have deep concentration and are reborn in the former formless realms, so they are born with a coarse body. 
a person who will be reborn in a pure land, and not born in a desire realm coarse body, a tantric practitioner who gains spiritual realizations at the time of death, like Jason Kappa, or an Arya who has control over the rebirth process and can direct where they're reborn. Okay. Um, and death is the last moment when the body and mind are joined. Yeah. We usually think of death as the moment that they separate. But death is the last moment where they're, to they're together and the moment they separate is already you're, you're going into the next life. Death occurs owing to four situations. First, exhaustion of the lifespan. The karma that brought about this life is exhausted and that lifetime ceases. Okay, so there's a certain karma that ripened, that, you know, propelled this life. There, it has a, a certain duration, and when that causal energy is finished, then death occurs, okay? Okay, second thing is exhaustion of merit. So merit is required to stay alive once we are born, and when it runs out, death occurs. Okay, so we need a lot of merit to have food, to live in a safe place, to receive medicine when we're sick. When the merit runs out, then also death can happen. Okay, so the karma that maintains the lifespan may still be intact, but the person lacks the merit to receive food, shelter, clothing, or medicine, and death occurs. Okay, so there's the karmic lifespan. That may be there, but the merit to receive all the cooperative conditions to stay alive gets exhausted, and so death occurs. Then the third uh, way death happens is both of the above occur simultaneously. And then the fourth is a ripening of destructive karma. So even though the lifespan and merit may not be exhausted, the seed of a strong destructive karma ripens and cuts short the lifespan, bringing an untimely death due to an accident or unexpected illness. Okay, so in terms of like the people in the nursing homes who are quite old, who are dying from the virus, with some of them, it may be that the lifespan just runs out. Yeah. With some, it may be that the merit to receive runs out. So there's no merit to receive medicine or even a proper diagnosis. And with some of them, it may be an untimely death where a very strong negative karma is ripening. So it could, we don't know in individual cases which one it is. Okay, but it could be any of those, even though the person is quite old. Yeah, and it could be the same even for people who are young. It's not like everybody has 
a karmic lifespan to live until 80 or 90. Some people's karmic lifespan, you know, runs out when they're 20 or 30 or even younger. And they say that sometimes when uh, when uh, a woman miscarries, it's because that being in a previous life was their... Um, their karmic lifespan wasn't fully exhausted. It was cut off maybe by the ripening of an untimely karma. But they only had a little bit of karma left to live as a human life. So they were conceived in the womb, but then they weren't born because that karmic energy ran out. Yeah. Okay, so all, you know, it's not that we all have the same karmic uh, energy to, to be alive until the same age. Okay, so rather than get into the three points, are there any further questions or comments? Yeah. I was just going to say that... Um, with so much uh, death around the world right now, that it really seems to have uh, woke up people, mm. because that's what it often does. And then the wonderful thing, even though that's such a tragedy and sad, is that people's kindness comes pouring out. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing now. And that's yeah. so beautiful. So beautiful. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of kindness, aren't we? And I, I makes me wonder, what was it like in 1918 when you're still fighting a world war? I mean, they're fighting a world war, and the pandemic is happening at the same time. And talk about the government not giving people information. They didn't tell people about the flu because it would destroy the war effort, you know? And people would lose energy to go to war, and they would be afraid of catching the flu, and they wanted the people to, to you know, run the factories and the war machine and go off and, and kill other people, you know? So they didn't tell people about the pandemic. Yeah. So, I mean, talk about government secrecy. That's harmful. Look at that. Yeah. And how many? Was it 18 million? Oh, no. 50 million. 50 million. Worldwide? World, 50 to 60 million worldwide. Yeah. So imagine deaths. So imagine what that was like. And I wonder how much... At that time, did people even know that many people were dying? Yeah? Or did that only come out later? Yeah, I wonder. One of my aunts turned 85, and so her parents, my grandparents, and many people here, they were alive during the pandemic. You know, they're probably in their early 20s. So I was asking my aunt, you know, do you remember stories about your mom talking about the pandemic? And she paused, and she's a very gifted storyteller. Nothing stops her. 
And she said, you know, I don't remember anything. Because right after that, the depression hit, right? Almost right after that. People were yeah. just trying to keep their lives together. Mm -hmm. Then World War II started. They were raising families. It was like people just had to move on, it yeah. seems like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, unless you're in a big center, I, I don't think they knew. Mm -hmm. Only 1.8 billion people in the world at the time. No, 1.8 billion. Billion. Okay. So 1.8 billion people. 500 million, or one third of the world's population, became infected with it. Wow. 50 million died, of which 675,000 of them lived in our country. And the mortality was high in people younger than five years old and 20 to 40 years old. Mm. So it was the younger, it was the younger opposite people, than what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So a third of the world was infected. Infected. That's amazing when you think of it. Two questions online. Um, Sin is asking, do imprints of merit go with us from lifetime to lifetime, like karmic imprints? Yes. They are karmic imprints. Yeah. She said, I just realized I'm not clear on the difference between karma and positive potential. Oh, positive um, karma can be either uh, positive or negative. Okay, positive potential is just another translation for merit, which means good karma. And then Ron is asking, why do prayers for long life, such as we do for the Dalai Lama? Does it affect his karma for a long life? It affects our karma. <laughs> yeah, to have him. Okay, when we aspire for that, we're imprinting in our own mind that he is an important uh, figure in our life and an important influence. And when sentient beings all want to learn the Dharma, then the teachers hang around to teach us. You know? Okay. <laughs>